failure to love God, to love Jesus Christ, and a failure to love others is a failure to obey the two most important commands God has given us. It's a sin. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. We continue to look at the first of seven churches mentioned in Revelation chapters two and three. Today, Tom continues to look at the great failing of the Ephesian church, that these believers allowed their zeal for hard work and fidelity to doctrine to cause them to neglect their genuine love for Christ and their fellow believers. Passion and dedication to right doctrine and service are good and right, but as Tom will remind you today, each church must heed Christ's warning about what happens if they focus too much on ultimate things but lose one's first love. Pay attention to the question that this letter asks of you. Do you personally love Jesus Christ? Is He your Lord? And is He the one for whom you live? Let's join Tom Pennington for more on The Word Unleashed. Now remember that with each church, Christ presents a personalized self-description that fits their circumstances. And that description goes back to what John saw in chapter 1. In the case of this church here in Ephesus, Christ reminds him, reminds them rather, that he is intimately present with his churches, including their church. Verse 1, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. By the way, the Greek word for holes here is stronger than the word had in his hand back in chapter 1, verse 16. It means to hold firm or to grip Christ sovereignly controlled the leaders of the church in Ephesus. Those leaders, you remember, are addressed by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 when he knew he wouldn't see them again. He gave them that great charge in ministry. Verse 1 goes on to say, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You remember in chapter 1, Christ is standing among the lampstands representing his churches. Here, he's walking among all the churches, including the church in Ephesus. The idea is he, is he is engaging, he is active, he's constantly evaluating the condition and state of each one. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I'm the one who is now sharing my evaluation of your church with the leaders and congregation in Ephesus. I'm the one who sovereignly controls the leaders and who is walking among his churches, constantly assessing, evaluating. It's so important to remember the same is true with Christ's evaluation of every church. But that brings us then, secondly, to the body of the letter, where Christ gets to the state of the church in verses 2 through 6. Now, as I mentioned, the body of each letter begins with the same word. Seven times Jesus says, I know. I have a comprehensive, full, complete knowledge what follows is his commendation, if there is one, his correction, if there is one, and his call for repentance, if correction was necessary. With Ephesus, it includes all three. So let's look at them together. He begins with a commendation of the good in verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. He starts by saying that the church in Ephesus was known 
for its pattern of faithful, enduring service. Verse 2, I know your deeds. That's a general term for what goes on in the church. But then he gets specifically to their, their ministry service. He says, I know your toil. This word describes their service as hard work. It's a word, the word toil is is a word which means to toil to the point of exhaustion. The people who were a part of the church in Ephesus worked hard. They worked hard to share the gospel with the lost, to edify their fellow believers, to care for the physical needs of the saints. I know, Jesus says, your toil and your perseverance. He says, I know that You not only work hard, but you continue to faithfully serve in spite of the difficulty of living in a society that is opposed to your efforts. That's the idea behind perseverance. So this was a church known for a a great pattern of faithful service. It's also a church that was known for its spiritual discernment. Notice verse 2 goes on to say, Christ says, I know this. I know that you cannot tolerate evil men. In other words, this was a church that insisted on the importance of personal holiness. They refused to tolerate those who professed Christ but lived sinful antinomian lives. Undoubtedly, they practiced church discipline. You cannot tolerate evil men. And by the way, just file it away that Christ praises that. You know, there's, a, there's a, a weak, sentimental form of Christianity across our country that think loving Christ and loving people means tolerating anything and everything. Christ says, no, I commend you. I commend you for the fact that you don't tolerate the lack of holiness among the church. He goes on to say, verse 2, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not and you found them to be false. We don't know if these were men claiming to be apostles on the level with Paul and, and the, the eleven who survived after the death of Judas, or whether they were simply claiming to be itinerant ministers who were sent out by another church and, and were there to, to help the church in Ephesus. That's unclear, but likely there are those who were very much self-promoting, false teachers who promoted themselves as leaders As Paul had urged the Galatians, the Christians in the Ephesian church compared the teaching of men who claimed to be apostles against the Scripture and found them to be false apostles, that is, found them to be lying. How? How did they test the false teachers? Well, I wish I had time for this, but in the New Testament, we discover that false teachers can be identified in three ways. They can be identified by their teaching, by the behavior of their converts, and by their own lives. So the church in Ephesus evaluated the false teachers and discovered that's exactly what they were. They looked at their lives and how they lived. They looked at their, their converts and how their converts lived, those who followed them, and they looked at, as well at their teaching and found it to be out of sync with the teaching of the New Testament. You remember at the end of his third missionary journey, Paul had urged the elders of the church in Ephesus to be on their guard against false teachers. Turn back there. Look at Acts chapter 20. This was Paul's parting charge to the elders of the church in Ephesus. This would have been some 30, 35 years before Christ dictates this letter. 
in Revelation 2. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the, the alert. Be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you. By the way, that's that word we encountered this morning. I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul charged the, the leaders of the church in Ephesus, beware, they're going to be false teachers. And by God's grace, this church had remained faithful to that charge. Forty years later, they were still holding the line doctrinally. This was a church that took its responsibility seriously. It worked hard in ministry, and it guarded and preserved the truth. It identified error. It protected its people. Verse 3 says, And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary they simply refused to quit. They kept working, and they kept refuting error, and they kept teaching the truth. And notice, they were driven by the highest of motives for my namesake. Christ says, you're doing this for the glory of my name, and you haven't grown weary. You've just kept on and kept on. Christ adds a related commendation down in verse 6. Let's go ahead and look at that together. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The church in Ephesus hated the false teaching and actions of a group called the Nicolaitans. Now, let me just be honest with you. We really don't know a lot about this group. Outside of Revelation, almost nothing is known. From the standpoint of etymology, the, the name that's used for them here combines the Greek words victory and people. Either the victory of the people or victory over the people. What's interesting is the, the Hebrew equivalent of this name, or very close, is the name Balaam. Irenaeus, the early church father, says this heresy, the Nicolaitan heresy, was started by a man named Nicholas who was one of the seven men appointed to distribute food to the widows in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, and who became an apostate, proved to be a false believer, and yet maintained his influence because of his past credentials. A number of other church fathers agree with that. Tertullian, Hippolytus, Jerome, Augustine, and the church historian Eusebius all agree, calling this a sect that came from Nicholas a sect of, quote, licentious antinomian Gnostics. In other words, they lived immoral lives, they were happy to live however they wanted, and they were Gnostics in their basic approach. Victorinus, the first commentator on Revelation, says this, they were false and troublesome men who as ministers under the name of Nicholas had made for themselves a heresy to the effect that what had been offered to idols might be exorcised that, that is cleansed, the, the demons, if you will, thrown out of them and eaten, and that whoever should have committed fornication might receive peace on the eighth day. In other words, those things didn't matter. You could engage in those things. What we know for sure is that in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Nicolaitans come up again, and there they're connected, as we'll see, with the teaching of the, the Old Testament false prophet Balaam. 
You remember God prevented Balaam from cursing Israel, so what did Balaam do? He advised Moab's king to seduce Israel into both sexual and spiritual adultery. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. The Nicolaitans were following the very same approach. They had worked out a way to compromise with their pagan society. They encouraged sexual and spiritual unfaithfulness with the surrounding pagan idolatry. The main point is this. Like Balaam, the Nicolaitans were not an outside enemy seeking to destroy the Christian faith. They were false teachers who were destroying the faith from within. Leon Morris writes, This is the insidious fifth column, destroying from within. By the way, did you see that Christ praises the church in Ephesus for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Biblical love is not the absence of hate. In fact, biblical love is always accompanied by a corresponding hatred for both evil and error. It's interesting, in Psalm 36, the wicked person is described as one who does not despise evil. It's an interesting expression. He does not despise evil. The church in Ephesus wasn't like that. They hated the deeds of those who called the church into sexual and spiritual adultery. And Christ adds in verse 6, which I also hate. Now, folks, take a look at that list I just went through in verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. You would have been proud to attend this church. It was a wonderful church in so many ways, and yet all was not well. Because next, Christ turns to a correction of the sin in the church in Ephesus in verse 4. It turns out there was a fatal flaw. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The Greek word translated left means to give up or to abandon. But it's interesting, it's a word that can also mean to neglect something that is more important because you've chosen to pursue something less important. Let me say that again. The word can also mean that you neglect what is most important because you've chosen to pursue something less important. It's used this way in Matthew 23, verse 23 where Jesus is condemning the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, your garden herbs, and listen to this, and have neglected, there's our word, you've left, you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So in other words, this leaving can happen by abandoning it, or it can happen by choosing to stress something else more. And I think that's exactly what's implied in this letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, what does it mean you have, you've left your first love? Well, first love could mean love for Christ, or it could mean love for fellow Christians. You've left your love for Christ, or you've left your love for fellow Christians. And if you read the commentaries, you'll find they argue back and forth on this. But because the two of those are so intimately connected, I personally think it means both. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. John the Apostle, the same one who wrote this, says this, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, he says the two are, the two are hand in glove. If you love God 
then you're going to love others. Or let me put it even more directly. If you love Jesus Christ, you're going to love his people. If you love the husband, Christ, you're going to love the bride. The two are together. For 40 years before this was written, this church had been known for its love. I'm not going to take you back, but I encourage you at some point to read through the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. And you'll see that, that he praises them for their love. Ephesians 1.15, chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, he prays that their love will increase. Chapter 6, verse 23, that was 40 years earlier. But the church had left the love that characterized them at the first. That's the idea by a first love. They had left the love. They had abandoned the love. They had neglected, by stressing something else, the love that had characterized them at the first. They were still faithful in their service. Don't miss this. They were still faithful in their service. They persevered in that. They were still faithful in their doctrine. They were still faithful in their biblical discernment. But their love for their Lord and for others had grown cold. The sin of the Ephesian believers was that they allowed their zeal for hard work and for doctrine a right zeal, but they allowed their zeal for those things to cause them to neglect their genuine love for Christ and their fellow believers. Love for Christ is the greatest commandment, and it is the essence in the end of what it means to be a Christian. Remember the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And 1 Corinthians 16, 22 makes this very direct about our love for Christ. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be damned. In other words, he's not a Christian. Real Christians love Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6.24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Do you love Jesus Christ? Again, I'm not asking you about some profession you made in the distant past. I'm not asking you about some doctrinal affirmation you would make. I'm asking you, do you personally love Jesus Christ? Is He your Lord? Is He the one for whom you live? Is there anything more important to you than pleasing Christ? Love for Christ is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Love for others is the second great commandment. Jesus said the second is likened to it. In Matthew, He said, listen, love your neighbor as yourself. And loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the clearest tests of genuine faith. Read 1 John. Again and again, John comes back to say, listen, don't say you love God if you don't love your brother. And if you don't love him practically, if you're not looking for ways to help, 1 Corinthians 13 says, you can make great sacrifices. You can have extraordinary gifts. But if you don't have love, it's what? It's like a clanging symbol. It's just a bunch of noise. It's not reality. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary, writes this, works that please God aren't merely the right actions. They have a specific quality, colored and animated by love. We may hate nothing, listen to this, we may hate nothing and confuse our apathy and tolerance with love, falling into the errors of relativism and pluralism. At the same time, the Ephesian church may have overreacted so that their zeal for truth squelched love for God and for one another. You see what happened in Ephesus. 
is a really subtle error. It's when you keep serving like you ought to serve, and you keep teaching like you ought to teach, and you keep using spiritual discernment like you ought to use spiritual discernment. All of those things Christ praises, we ought to do them, but we can so emphasize those that in the process of emphasizing them, we neglect the weightier, which is our love for Christ and our love for His people. In other words, it's not a call for either or, it's a call for both and. So that's the correction of the sin. Verse 5 is a call for repentance. And there are steps. Christ identifies three steps here to rekindle their first love. And this would be true for any of us, or if God forbid this are true of our church. How does it happen? Well, first of all, verse 5, here's the first step, therefore remember. Therefore remember from where you've fallen. There's a powerful word picture in that expression, where you've fallen. It, it, it pictures having fallen from a great height having fallen off a cliff. That's what it's like to leave your first love. It's like you've fallen off a cliff spiritually. Christ says, remember from where you've fallen. Force yourself to remember those days when you were driven by true love for Christ and for others. By the way, the Greek word here, remember, is in the present tense. It has the idea of keep on remembering intentionally hold in your memory what it was like when you were motivated and driven by a true love for Jesus Christ and a love for his people. Remember, the second step is, and repent. In other words, acknowledge that your current state is unacceptable and resolve to return to the priority of love. A failure to love God, to love Jesus Christ, and a failure to love others is a failure to obey the two most important commands God has given us. It's a sin. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that we can abandon our service for Christ and our spiritual discernment and just love Christ and others. That's the other extreme. Christ praises those things. As I said, this is not either or, but a both and. Repent. And then the third step in verse 5 is, and do the deeds you did it first. In other words, intentionally having remembered what it was like to do what you do, to do those very same things, but to do them from a heart driven by love for Christ and others, John says, do that. Do that again. You need to rekindle your love for Christ and for others. Those are the steps. And then he, he ends the body of the letter with a warning. The end of verse 5. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I am coming implies, it's in the present tense as you can see there, it implies certainty, you can count on it, and quickness, it's going to happen. By the way, this is not a reference to the second coming. This is a reference to Jesus coming to this church to discipline it. When Christ visits the church, if he finds that the church has not repented, he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. That implies the total destruction of the church. Not physically, it doesn't mean the building where they met was going to go away, or that they would even stop meeting necessarily. Here's what it means. Leon Morris writes, a church can continue only so long on a loveless course. Without love, it ceases to be a church and its lampstand is removed. But Christ's judgment, his discipline is not inevitable. 
if they will repent, there's still hope. And that's true for any individual believer, and it's true for any church. Jesus says, remember, repent, and do what you did before. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom will bring you part three on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.